one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Welcome to the Green Left Podcast. In this interview, Kamala Emanuel speaks to Federico Fuentes about the Venezuelan National Assembly elections held on December 6. The interview is conducted on December 13. Um, so can I ask you, Fred, to just kick off with a bit of a discussion or just unpacking the, um, the background to this uh, Venezuelan election that took place last weekend. Can you talk a bit about our, uh, like the, the, political and economic and social conditions in Venezuela domestically and, and its context internationally? Yeah, well, look, on, on paper, you know, the, the elections essentially saw uh, a reversal uh, of the 2015 National Assembly elections. And in 2015, the opposition obtained their first major electoral victory um, in you know, close to 15 years, uh, obtaining control of, of the National Assembly. This time around, um, the 2020 National Assembly elections are seen in the context of a high abstention rate and a, a large opposition boycott, um, not a complete, the some opposition sectors participated in these elections, but a majority uh, boycotted. So a reversal of those results. So this time around, it's the United Socialist Party of Venezuela who will now have control of, of the National Assembly. But the reality is that Probably the, the, the biggest difference in terms of what this result will mean will have less, of an, less to do with the National Assembly itself. For most of the, since 2015, the National Assembly has essentially been operating outside of the constitutional framework um, because the opposition has refused to accept uh, some Supreme Court rulings regarding uh, some deputies who were elected uh, under questionable circumstances and so re-elections were, were meant to be held. The opposition refused to do that and so it's essentially not really legislated for the last five years. And we've also seen in that context a, a National Constituent Assembly uh, which was elected in, in 2017 operating um, this one under the control or you know with a majority of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela but also it's not really legislated much. So we probably won't see a huge difference in, in that context. Where, where the biggest impact is in is will be the broader political and potentially economic um, impacts this will have on, on Venezuela. Um, since 2015, the opposition has really used National Assembly as a springboard for an intensification of its destabilization campaign against the government of President Nicolas Maduro. Up until 2015, it had been, by and large, for the last few years, mainly taking the approach of trying to defeat Chavismo at the, at the electoral, um, at the ballot box having narrowly missed out on beating Nicolas Maduro in the 2013 presidential elections and then, as I said, obtaining a victory in 2015. After that, though, it very much felt that it was on the ascendancy and that now was the time to strike to get rid of Maduro. And so for the last five years, we've seen an extreme intensification of political destabilisation in Venezuela, kill attempts, assassination attempts, paramilitary incursions, uh, economic warfare, We've seen a deterioration of the economic situation as a result of the international sanctions, which the National Assembly has essentially been uh, going around, or deputies from the old National Assembly have been going around the countries around the world calling for a tightening of the sanctions uh, on, on Venezuela. So we've seen a political crisis deepening in that country, an economic crisis that has worsened as a result of, of these economic sanctions. All of this now 
the opposition find themselves in a situation, in a very complex situation, because they've seen for five years they've tried to do this, they've tried to worsen the situation in Venezuela with the aim of trying to turn people against um, the Nicolas Maduro government. And while the turnout for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela certainly saw a decline in its vote, as I said, it's still enough to, to win these elections. Um, what we've seen on the opposition side is a, a decline in, in its support base. Certainly many of its supporters are demoralised by the fact that five years ago they were promised that Nicolas Maduro would be gone. And on top of that, their most recent tactic, which was basically dependent on their control of the National Assembly, which was to declare um, newly elected National Assembly President Juan Guaido, who assumed that role at the start of 2019 as the the interim president uh, for Venezuela, uh, now finds himself basically uh, not even the president of, of the National Assembly. This is going to be a real challenge for the opposition. Of course, Juan Guaido is still trying to lobby uh, governments around the world to continue to recognise his National Assembly and him as the interim president. He's now asking the international community to basically uh, support a body whose constitutional mandate has clearly um, expired and who has no intent to actually go to new elections to relevate, uh, renovate his democratic mandate. So, of course, many are already starting to question whether they're going to continue to support Juan Guaido. Certainly, uh, European Union, United States have made clear that they don't support the recently elected National Assembly. Um, but certainly in terms of the opposition, we will see uh, an important reconfiguration. And what this means for Venezuela is potentially two things in terms of your question about what is, what's the impact in terms of the political, economic, um, social conditions in Venezuela. Well, politically, I think it potentially opens up a space for a return to politics through the constitutional framework in Venezuela. Having essentially, the Maduro government having essentially been able to fight back and resist for five years this intense onslaught that's been occurring. And the sense is now that you've already fractured a sec section of the opposition who participated in these elections. Um, didn't do extremely well, but certainly were able to mobilise a couple of uh, a couple of million votes uh, in, in in these elections in a context where the majority of the opposition parties were boycotting. But you're now seeing even a, a middle section of, of of the opposition, largely represented in many ways by Enrique Capriles, a two-time opposition presidential candidate, saying, "Look, the, the the time of Juan Guaido, the time of this interim presidency is over. Um, what we need to do now is to fight to ensure." Um, that we can create the space possible to be able to um, win win this in the in the ballot box, and so we will see, hopefully, um, you know, a, a, a return to trying to resolve Venezuela's deep political division, a division that's, you know, very much a class based division, um, the the uh, hatred of the old political class towards Chavismo as a, as a movement of the political poor, um, an attempt to see, well, look, if you you know, the only way that these differences uh, can be resolved is through, through an electoral framework. Um, so we'll see that that may be a, a potential shift. I think combined with that will, of course, then be the questions of the economic sanctions, because even the opposition are starting to realise that this is the strategy that is backfiring on them five years on. Well, many economic sanctions began many years ago um, in terms of smaller sanctions on, on military hardware, things like that, but certainly since 2017. We've seen an extreme ratcheting up of these sanctions and it's really starting to take its toll, so much so that the polls show that even amongst opposition supporters, the majority no longer really support the economic sanctions. They don't see it as working to get rid of Nicolas Maduro. In fact, arguably, it's only strengthening um, his, his, his sort of uh, 
the, the strength of his government within Venezuela. And it's, it's having a, a dire impact on people's everyday lives. So this may also add to a broader, a more united front um, or a, a broader pressure from within Venezuela that doesn't just come from the gut side of supporters of the government, but also from a growing section of the opposition to call on particularly the United States, but also European countries to lift these economic sanctions uh, as part of helping to, to get Venezuela out of the, the situation that it's currently in. Yeah, and just thinking about the, the sanctions and the, the fact that the European Union and the, the US haven't recognised the, um, the most recent National Assembly elections, what, what do you make of the, you know, those forces and, and international media um, and their, their commentary around whether or not this, is, uh, this has been a democratic process? Yeah, so the, the, there's two parts to that. The real reason that the governments around the world don't want to recognise the new National Assembly is obviously they, they've been put into this bind, having in many of these cases, you know, claimed that Juan Guaido is the legitimate uh, sort of president of, of Venezuela. And given that the opposition have basically now said you know, after having won the 2015 elections or overnight declared no longer were elections legitimate uh, in Venezuela. I've had to sort of been taken down this road um, of essentially without any evidence or proof. And in fact, in many cases, with outright refusal to send observers uh, to monitor the electoral process in Venezuela. Just basically say, well, look, we, 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 we've now determined that we're the ones who decide the, the electoral results. Uh, in Venezuela. This is where they're in a bit of a bind. And I think this is why having seen, you know, the fact that having continued to ignore the election results um, in the context of an opposition boycott have seen now the, the National Assembly go back to the control of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, that many of these governments will certainly be starting to think, well, we've got to, you know, there must be a different way possible. And, and I think it has to be added that the US government, and certainly under Trump, uh, has been the spearhead of this campaign this campaign to delegitimise, uh, to not recognise. Uh, in fact, you know, the evidence has come out that Juan you know, Guaido was in constant contact, um, not just with US embassy, rep with US government representatives, but even right up until Mike Pence, who gave him the go-ahead to launch his interim presidency, uh, knowing that the US and also Spain would be the first to immediately come out and recognise him. They've been able to utilise, and certainly in Trump's case, utilise that to basically still Venezuela as well. Um, in terms of Citgo, the PDVSA being the state oil company, Citgo is its affiliate base in the US. The Trump administration used this interim presidency as an excuse to basically expropriate Citgo and hand it over, so expropriate a state-owned company and hand it into the private uh, hands of, of Juan Guaido and, and his supporters. So that's one aspect of it. This is, this is why the US has been a big part of spearheading this, of essentially as a way to steal Venezuela's wealth and hand it over to the opposition. And you know, the broader you know, European Union basically coming in behind this strategy, which has meant that even though it's been invited on several occasions to observe elections, has refused to do so. But I think now he's reconsidering how useful this, this strategy or this tactic of the opposition has been. The other side of it is how the media has reported on, on all of this essentially accepting as good coin and refusing to point out the fact that it's, you know, it's not been Venezuela who said we don't want international observers. It's, it's the US and the European Union who have fought tooth for now to stop any kind of international observers going there to be able to monitor these elections. They've been the ones that have been not, you know, you know, trying to undermine 
Venezuela's electoral electoral authority. Uh, this is in a context where the media very often, you know, have been willing to accept any cries of fraud, any cries of uh, illegitimate elections uh, from people in Venezuela. We also saw it um, last year in Bolivia as well, in a in a, a movement that essentially ultimately led to a coup to overthrow a democratically elected president. Media have largely fallen uh, fallen um, in line, fallen behind this kind of story. What's what's kind of ironic is that these same figures, these same political forces in Venezuela, as I said, who were pursuing a strategy uh, largely being dictated to them from Washington, a strategy not too dissimilar actually from what Trump has tried to do now in the United States election. And all of a sudden the media has taken the opposite viewpoint of talking about how all, how this is horrific uh, for democracy. You know, the, the, the double standards there of, of the so-called journalism uh, really has to be called out where they're more than happy to see democracy eroded and destroyed uh, overseas uh, if, if it suits their political narrative, if it suits their political purposes, more importantly, if it suits the political um, objectives of governments like the United States and the European Union. Um, but when it comes to the United States and a politician like Trump, who, you know, it's very well known, has had a, you know, the media establishment have not particularly liked him uh, from, from day one, I'm more than happy to, to, to criticise that. So I think that, that, that double standard really has to be called out of, of the media. As I said, from the government's viewpoint, it's because they've got a political objective. The United States had a political objective. It wants to not just get rid of Nicolas Maduro, but it wants to steal Venezuela's resources. And that's what it, it achieved by saying it would not recognise Maduro, that it would recognise Guaido and use that excuse to expropriate Sitco. We've seen the same happen in, in Britain with the, the gold that Venezuela has in, in the Bank of England that they've refused to give back to Venezuela to be able to use that to buy the food and medicine it needs to circumvent the, the sanctions. Um, they do it for political reasons. The media have really just been the, the covering up for them, you know, basically trying to present a, a veneer of, of democracy really to... Um, to cover up for what are fundamentally anti-democratic actions that have been taken by the Venezuelan opposition and by its supporters internationally. And, and this theft of the, the gold, of the oil, of the, the resources of Venezuela, that, that has had, a, as you've said, a devastating impact on the, the people of Venezuela. Can you just unpack a little bit about what has been the, um, you know, the, the economic and social impact and, and what the ramifications of that have been for, for politics in Venezuela? So, the, I mean, in terms of the, the, the sort of day-to-day -day impact, it's, it, it's really hard to sort of, you know, just detail just how much of an impact it's had. Like, of course, we can look at the figures, the fact that after having, you know, really almost possibly led the region in terms of poverty reduction. We've now seen, you know, rising poverty uh, in Venezuela. Uh, we've seen Venezuela having gone from a situation where it was um, where the question of access to well, food security or access to, to food had seen a situation where people's um, uh, calorie intake had surpassed, you know, gone beyond the, what was, you know, sort of the recommended healthy intake uh, to now once again dropping below that level. So it's had certainly an impact in terms of poverty, uh, in terms of, um, you know, basic indicators um, uh, like those. But it's, it's also had a number of other uh, other impacts, and that is that it's, it's just impacted on people's everyday lives. Um, it's just not possible today in Venezuela um, as a result of the economic situation in the country to 
to, to survive just off your, your wages. You know, Venezuela's wages as a result of what's been occurring in the last few years have been totally pulverised. Um, you know, so a monthly wage can you know, best get you, you know, a very, very small amount of the food that you need to not just feed yourself but to feed a family. So when you're not working, you're having to find other ways to make a living, whether that's operating the informal market and doing some kind of side job, uh, whether it's being dependent on remittances um, coming in from from outside the country, so this you know it's a it's a daily grind. It's it's just every day is trying to find that little that that you know what you need to to get to the end of the day in order to then wake up the next day and go through this this process again. Of course, and this year under COVID, it's been made even harder where you've had you know the necessi- necessity to impose kind of um, nationwide lockdowns uh, to deal with the COVID crisis because. Venezuela's health system has also been impacted by the sanctions. So it becomes really difficult, but it also then has its impact on, on the political sphere because what it means is that, you know, not only do you not have any real time to do any kind of political activism, and this has impacted not just the government, but also the opposition. Many opposition supporters just don't have the time to go out to protest and they're trying to survive um, uh, day to day. But, but it's had an impact of basically... Um, you know, a society that for for many years under Chavez had you know seen a real growth of collective organisation, whether that be the economic sphere, cooperatives, uh, worker-run factories, um, worker co-managed factories in the state sector, whether that was in the in the political sphere through community councils, communes that were, got communities to get together to discuss and debate collectively their, their issues, their problems, to democratically resolve which ones to tackle. Um, all of this has sort of, you know, been, been heavily impacted as well because, one, there's not that time and there's that real pursuit of just individual solutions to get out of that, whether that be, as I mentioned, some of the, the ones that I mentioned before, the informal market, and whether that be, you know, um, trying to somehow make money on if you live in the border regions um, to sell, sell contraband o- over the border, um, or whether it's been, as we've seen, you know, large numbers that have just left the country. Um, and many of those cases, people with a lot of skills, skills that they've learned um, through the expansion of the higher education system in Venezuela, um, but that have realised that as a professional, they can make much better living than what they can currently do in the current situation in Venezuela. So it has, has had a very dramatic impact. And this is almost never reported in the media when, when the discussion is had about what's occurring in Venezuela, the sanctions are at best mentioned in passing um, or, or more commonly just, just not, meant, not even part of the conversation. Uh, when if you talk to people in Venezuela, all you know, the polls constantly show the majority acknowledge, A, the sanctions are bad, B, they're having an impact on everyone, C, they want these sanctions lifted. And that's taken a political toll on the opposition as well who's seen their support wither um, in some sections because of their open uh, campaigning internationally uh, to, to maintain the economic sanctions on Venezuela with really no, no way out or no, no, uh, no other option than to say, well, the sanctions will remain until, until Maduro goes, when many don't see that as really a, a viable strategy as of that happening anytime soon and instead life just gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a diabolical set of contradictions. Can can you see any way forward? What what do you? I mean, at the risk of sounding like just speculation, um, what what options are there for the um, for the working class uh, forces? 
Well, I think in terms of the sanctions, I mean, and this goes back to the importance of the National Assembly elections, it, 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 there's, there's the potential there now for a, for a broader front uh, that's not just the government, but also with opposition forces to actually now lobby to get the sanctions, uh, you know, preferably lifted completely, but certainly at least, um, you know, some eased, um, because the opposition forces are realizing that this this is not this is not helping their cause. It's they're they're losing support amongst their own supporters for being seen to be openly on the side of of the sanctions, and given the situation that they're creating in Venezuela, it, it almost actually sort of, um, you know, has the contradictory impact of what it's meant to do because the idea is that this was going to turn people against the government. But as I said, the reality is what, what it's meant is that, A, made every, everyday life harder so it's less likely that people are involved in, in political activism, but also it's in some ways increased the dependency people have on the state or at least for its large sections of the population dependency they have on the state, for instance, to be able to get the, the food packages that are provided by the local committees for... Uh, production and distribution. Yeah, those, those are key key um, food uh, food parcels that are given to to families all around the country that are a crucial part of them being able to make it through the end of the month. So the opposition are recognising that this is not not helping their cause at all. At least a, an important section of the opposition, uh, Guaido and and the more ultra right sections seem to be intent on continuing that line. And of course, you know that that's the line they've been pushing now for for several years. So it's unlikely perhaps that they will uh, change their tune, but what does seem to be occurring is possibly a, a shift within the broader section of the opposition to say, look, yeah, even even we don't, we don't support these these sanctions anymore. So that 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 would be quite quite important. And I think that would be quite important, not just for overall the the, the situation in, in Venezuela, but also for for reopening political discussion because the reality is that we've seen the sanctions have just come to dominate everything in terms of of the political discussion, and it means that some of the other broader problems. Uh, occasionally get put to the side. And of course, this, this suits um, those on, on both sides of politics, but this suits those in the government or in the opposition who don't want to talk about some, some of these broader issues and can just, certainly from the government's viewpoint, just simply point to the sanctions as being responsible for everything. And the reality is that there are also key policy issues, key, key mistakes, key, key questions that the government needs to deal with as well. And that, you know, is part of the reason why, even though Government won the elections. The United Socialist Party won majority of the vote, 69% of the vote, in a context of high abstention. But no one's forced to go to vote. That's that's how the that's how the elections work. They work like that in Venezuela. They work like that in every other country. But of course, if all you want to do is have an electoral democracy, then that's fine. That'll be enough to win elections. You know, all you've got to do is win more votes than than the opposition. Doesn't matter how many people turn out. But if you want to do as the Venezuelan constitution talks about and as the Chavista project has always had as its heart to build a, a popular, you know, protagonistic and participatory democracy, then you do need people's participation. You can't just rely or, or hope that people don't turn up and that enough of your supporters turn up more than the opposition. You need to get society involved. So that's another aspect of why lifting the sanctions would be important to allow these other discussions to, to, to flourish and open up, which can very easily or um, whether deliberately or not, be, be sort of shut down by the question of, well, uh, you know, we can't resolve anything until we resolve the economic sanctions first. I think that um, connects too a bit with um, a phenomenon you discussed in uh, one or two of your recent articles in Green Left on, on the Venezuelan elections with the, um, 
with this emergence of the, I believe it's the APR, a, a revolutionary current that stood against the PSUV. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, look, it, it, the, the, the formation of the, the popular revolutionary alternative, the APR, was, was pretty significant, um, not, not in terms of the vote that it, it achieved. In, in the end, it got 3% of the vote or just shy of 3%. It, it got one deputy elected to, to the National Assembly. But I'm not sure if that was really, you know, the electoral sphere was going to be the biggest impact it was going to have. The reality is what, what it did represent, though, was the first time that a number of political parties, social movements, trade union grouping, kind of said, look, we, we, we actually need to get together and start to reorganise our, our forces in, you know, amongst the popular classes because um, whilst, you know, many of them would have different appreciations of the Maduro government um, or, or, or the role that Nicolas Maduro has played, and I, I think many of them would certainly acknowledge that um, the, the, the ability to still, still be there after five years of, you know, intense destabilisation campaign is the strong point of, of the Maduro government, but you know, many are, are conscious that this has come at a political cost. This has come at concessions to, to the opposition, um, and it's come at concessions to more right-wing conservative forces within, within the Socialist Party. And so there's a sense of, well, we need to organise our side of the forces um, to not, you know, not just to help uh, the, you know, the Maduro government stay in power, but to re reorientate it, to get back on the direction um, where, where, where the sort of Chavista forces wanted to take Venezuela, this history, protagonistic democracy, this, what they referred to as 21st, 21st century socialism. So this was important. It, 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 it potentially opened a discussion, only potentially, because it's only just started. It's only been around for a few months, and we'll, and we'll have to see. I think there are, of course, many, many dangers. We, 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 um, we, well, not dangers, but challenges that the APR will face. It's... Um, you know, have to grapple with the reality and the, the elections show that majority of Chavistas still support the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, whether they have their criticisms or not. They, the APR weren't able to get traction uh, on the electoral sphere, neither amongst the hardcore of the PSUV, um, who pretty much by and large turned out to vote for the PSUV. The election result, if we consider that 30% turned out and two thirds of those who turned out voted PSUV, we're looking at roughly 20% of the electoral roll. That's roughly what the polls show um, support PSUV. So we had a pretty much a 100% turnout or a very, very high level of turnout of the hardcore supporters of, of the PSUV. But of, of course, to win elections and traditionally Chavismo has a role on much more than just its hardcore supporter. And it's been able to engage 40, 50, 60% of, of the population in, in, in other electoral contexts. So the APR wasn't really able to make inroads into that hardcore of the PSUV or into that, that broader section. So it, it needs to consider how it's able to continue to generate the debate that it started. Um, I think the, the, the biggest mistake it could do is to just think that the way it's going to move forward is simply by criticising, but this time from the left, um, the government. Uh, I don't, I, I think that's unlikely to really get it, gain a hearing. But what it can do is to start to open up a discussion on some of these other questions that some in the PSUV would prefer to just be deferred or not discussed at all until, you know, uh, after the sanctions or after, no doubt, after something else is, is discovered later on has been an obstacle to being able to uh, continue the process of radicalisation that, that had occurred uh, ever since really the Chavez's election in, in 1998 and for, for the last 20 years, but which for the last years has seen a, a sharp reversal and not just in terms of uh, 
the economic situation, but also this this process of, of radicalization of democracy in, in Venezuela. Yeah, look, I think that has been probably for you know left wing observers from. Australia or other parts of the world who are sympathetic to the revolution, the process of democratization of participation with what you referred to the the communes and the the um, neighborhood committees, the the whole concept of of a protagonist citizenship um, has has been one of the really inspiring uh, elements of of the revolution and what you described about the um, the challenges faced just by the the, the sanctions is, is obviously uh, is obviously really concerning. Um, so I guess it's just to be hoped that um, that that the there is a way forward that the sanctions can be lifted or at least eased, and and that there is more room again for uh, I guess that breathing space for the um, for the democratic forces to to reorganise. Is there anything else you think that we should be you know paying attention to in the, in the coming period? Yeah, and I, I think just to just to add to that last point, and this would be the view not just of people of the APR, but I'm sure I know it's the view of also of members of people who still remain as members of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. That their concern is that not not just that the impact of the sanctions are having um, on this sort of process of you know politicisation of society, of radicalisation uh, of democracy. It's not just the sanctions, but also how the sanctions are being used by the conservative elements in the PCV just sort of to, to sort of wind them back with the aim of probably, you know, potentially just really hoping to get back to a kind of the, the kind of the way the old two-party system operated in Venezuela. The difference this time around would be that the PCV would be one of those parties, you know, so that would, would still, that would still represent um, a shift from before because before you just had, you know, basically COPE, the Social Christian Party and Acción Democrática, the Social Democratic Party, both representing the traditional political class, they alternated amongst themselves. The vast majority of the poor were totally excluded from politics, had no representation whatsoever. And PCV today, um, you know, still continues to represent that, even if it also may represent other other class forces as well. But it, it you know, certainly that you know, it's a party that the majority of the the poor in Venezuela, the the, the working classes in Venezuela, see, see as their vehicle. But you know, I think many see this as stake is that maybe there'll be some. In the PCV, they'd be happy to just you know move back to a two-party system. PCV now being the, the major party, that might mean sometimes they lose elections. Um, but you know, but the, 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 that process of the radical democratization of society, we actually move beyond um, just representation, but to actual participatory democracy is very much at stake, and it's a, const, a constant battle. It's constantly coming up, and we see it coming up more and more with questions of how to deal with the economic sanctions as while well, the economic sanctions remain. So, for instance, how do you, you know, uh, if you desperately need private investment in the country uh, to try and turn around the economic situation, which I think almost everyone would agree is required in some form, uh, there might be a debate about whether there is any private investment that is interested in investing in Venezuela at the moment, given the economic um, situation. But I don't think anyone would say uh, they were against that. But then, of course, well, what conditions are required to do that? Um, does that mean having to roll back some of the economic measures undertaken by the Chavez government? Does that mean having to, in some cases, give back um, companies or land that have been uh, nationalised, expropriated, handed over to communities, to uh, to workers? All of these are the questions that are that are you know sharpening, becoming sharper. And I think it's what what has led to the formation, or in part has led to the formation of the APR. But as I said, it. It's not a discussion that can just be reduced to, to the APR. It's a discussion that goes much broader 
um, than just the APR. And so what will be interesting to see is how, uh, how on the one hand, how these elections, the ramifications, the impact will have on the opposition and the, the, the potential at least uh, for a, a sort of a, a moderate shift in the opposition towards the realisation that there has to be some kind of electoral participation as, as a way forward and perhaps a combined campaign to ease the sanctions on Venezuela. It'll be interesting to see what, what the broader ramifications will be amongst the, the base of Chavismo who run the risk of, um, you know, so I think I also wrote in an article after the, the Maduro elections in 2018 of, you know, uh, continuing continuing to win battles, but at the at the same time losing the war, um, and I think that's potentially what 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 we could be seeing you know occurring in Venezuela, where you know the Maduro government might still be there, but the reality is that the economic sanctions have had such an impact where they've essentially forced the Maduro government to implement the kind of policies that in many cases the opposition uh, would be quite happy to implement in the, in the economic sphere. So this is a real challenge, the real I think bind that Venezuela finds itself in, and why you know to get back to the to the the purpose of the interview, you know, why the National Assembly elections were so important, because they will have an impact going forward on, on the opposition side of politics. And I'm pretty pretty certain they will also have an impact going forward on the PCV or the, the, the left side of politics, irrespective of the actual vote that occurred in, in the elections itself or the exact composition of, of the National Assembly. All right. Well, Fred, thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, we might just leave it there and... Um, and uh, yeah, just look look forward to these developments as, as they continue. Fantastic. It was very much enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks, Fred. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.